This episode is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Threat Protection from Microsoft unifies your incident response process by integrating key capabilities across Microsoft Defender Advanced Threat Protection. Office 365 ATP, Microsoft Cloud App Security, and Azure ATP. Microsoft Threat Protection is part of the Microsoft 365 offering. Protection and detection. Learn more about Microsoft Threat Protection and M365 by visiting connection.com and navigating to the Microsoft Modern Workplace Solutions page. Welcome to Connection's Tech Experience Podcast, bringing you conversations with employees, partners, and customers discussing the latest trends and innovations impacting the modern workforce. Today, AI, artificial intelligence. What is fact? What is fiction? Our host, Penny Conway, Senior Program Manager for Workplace Transformation, sat down recently with Jamal Khan, the president of Connection's Global Serve division, which provides customers global access to IT products and services. E-commerce and marketing also fall under Jamal's leadership, and it's his background in software development that has come full circle now as he leads the company's AI efforts. My background by sort of uh, education and tradecraft is um, actually a software developer, and that's how I started my career uh, building trading environments on Wall Street. Interesting. Um, yeah, so um, so that's I'm going to age myself. That's when the internet <laughs> had just come out. So this was like uh, 96, uh, 97 time frame, and um, everyone was sort of scrambling to figure out you know, how to leverage this medium called the web. Mm. Um, and if you imagine those days or, or remember those days in my case, uh, so the models were very basic. It was all about, you know, the number of eyeballs that you can get to a site uh, that would equate to banner ads, and that was the revenue model. And there were some companies, in my case, it was Instanet, one of the largest uh, liquidity pools uh, for equity trading. Um, and and they were looking at leveraging the web as a means of migrating some of their proprietary trading pr platforms. Mm -hmm. And so th those are sort of the projects that I started off. And then sort of one of the instant challenge that we uh, sort of had to contend with was cybersecurity. How do you secure those right. transactions on an anonymous, uh, sessionless um, um, you know, platform? And um, and so that's where I got involved with a company called Verisign, which is a small company in those days. Then, oh yes, yes, yes. Verisign. And and then worked with them for about five years, and then sort of moved down after leaving Verisign uh, on my own path and started sort of investing in building companies. And uh, um, Global Serve was one of the companies uh, that I worked with and for. Uh, was their chief executive for eight years uh, prior to it being acquired by Connection in uh, late 2016. And and now you guys have me. Excellent. <laughs> so and now you are here I on know. our podcast. Yeah. That's your luck. <laughs> <laughs> all roads led to here. Yes, we're really to the podcast. <laughs> this is all converging to the podcast. Right, right. No, we're so excited to have you here. And I, um, artificial intelligence is obviously not a subject that I am proficient in, but I think all of us have some sort of interest or opinion around artificial intelligence and what it is future, you know, future forward, mm -hmm. um, but also what it is today. And you um, mentioned something interesting, you know, you talked about how you're doing a lot of marketing and the banner ads and when the web first came out, 
And that's kind of how I look at artificial intelligence is really this phone in my hand being an extension of me and marketers being able to use my data and find out things about me and learn about me and things like that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what the position of artificial intelligence is, you know, for us as people Mm -hmm. Um, and then kind of what it looks like as a, I think, more of a you know, a scientific study or a field mm-hmm. of study. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. So, I mean, that's a really broad question because <laughs> I can now go on a monologue for the next hour. Um, we'll break this up into a series. All right. So you've got to help me break this down. Um, so I, I think from a, a consumer sort of experience, I think in a lot of ways we're experiencing AI um, all the time. And it's become so subtly embedded in some of the day-in, day-out functions that we are involved in. Um, you know, simple things like your Alexa machine, mm-hmm. right? So uh, how it processes language when you're sending it uh, sort of vocal commands, um, your Amazon uh, purchases, um, you know, and then it sort of uh, gives you certain recommendations. So that's those are recommendation engines, and mm-hmm. they're generally built, again, on on uh, on some level of machine learning. And, um, and sort of your Netflix uh, movie choices, and then the recommendation engines that sort of give you certain documentaries that you have to watch or should watch. So those are sort of all these subtle examples um, that, you know, we're having to sort of work with and deal with on a day-in, day-out basis. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. We don't right. even realize that behind a lot of that is is some level of machine learning. Uh, and then obviously autonomous vehicles and, and where they come in. So if you're a proud owner of a Tesla, you know, there there's a lot of machine learning and, and, and systems within that as well. So that's sort of your, your day-in, day-out sort of uh, run-of-the-mill um, AI um, sort of systems being leveraged. And again, I, I use the term AI very loosely. I, I, I always make this mistake. And I, I, you know, when I lecture at some universities on this topic, I, I often sort of go through uh, a, l- a large amount of time explaining that AI at the end of the day is not applied technology. And I think a lot of people make that mistake. Yeah, that's a good point. W- right. So when we talk about AI, we say, well, I'm applying AI. Well, you're not applying AI <laughs> because AI is a field of study. Right. A- AI includes within it a whole bunch of different sub-constructs that you can apply. But on itself, um, AI is nothing but a field of study, something we've been studying for, for millennia in some ways, uh, going as far back as the Greeks, you know, and, and their notion of... Um, autonomous systems and mechanical systems in the 13th century and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a something that the humankind have been thinking of for a whole, um, you know, as I said, for millennia. And, uh, and, uh, and then of late, I think since the 50s, it's something that, that's sort of really taken a life right. uh, on its own. And, um, and that's been the progression. Now, the underpinning behind AI at the end of the day is, is just advanced algorithms. And, and since I've worked in AI systems and built a bunch of AI systems, I, I've, I, I don't know at what point was there that seminal moment where, you know, it just converged into this, this uh, you know, that AI is here. Well, AI has always been here. Right. It's, yeah. it's been here in the form of uh, really simple language translators since the 50s. It's been in the form of, um, you know, expert systems uh, in the six, 70s and 80s or, or the micro worlds in the 70s and 80s. So it's been around forever. I, I think there's been a, there's now sort of a convergence of certain things that are happening in the ecosystem that's sort of making AI more sort of uh, um, a relatable uh, sort of a, mm-hmm. a technology or a field of study than it has been in the past. But, you know, just to your question, coming back to your question, uh, 
fundamentally on, on a more sort of scientific sort of core construct level, it's a lot of computational mathematics that is well translated through um, algorithms. And those algorithms have now essentially become democratized and easier to use. And hence, we have this sort of convergence where AI is being applied across the board uh, or in a lot of different things. Right. And that's, I, I think, one of those first fact versus fiction, because that um, I think now that we see it in our personal lives and it's more more visibility, more access to what's going on in the field. We think it's this revolutionary thing that is coming to our lives. It's going to take over. It could be dangerous, all of those things. But it's truly been an evolution of mathematics and science. Absolutely. And data, you know, all the data that companies have been collecting, people have been collecting for years. Now having actual uh, a system to be able to process that data, output that data, Um, but definitely not new. Um, Even not even 50 years new. No, no, not (laughs) at all. Um, But I think there is the the one sort of aspect that I do talk about in terms of why is AI becoming so pervasive um, is that there is truly, there is a slight difference in terms of where we are today as opposed to in the past. And I often call that the convergence of, of the reasons why we're sort of ginning up this hype or that we, we see this hype uh, around AI. You know, one is clearly the explosion of data, to your point. You know, as, as consumers, we're now constantly, um, you know, generating information about ourselves, mm. uh, not to mention systems, not to mention uh, machines, not to mention autonomous machines, and so on and so forth. And now as we transition our sort of sort of global IT uh, or technology ecosystem into sensors. Uh, imagine the explosion of data that's going to come out of those sensors. I mean, you, you're theoretically going to have, not theoretically, literally going to have trillions of small sensors all over the place generating information. So there's clearly going to be a need of managing and processing that information in some meaningful way. And as machines become smarter at the edge the requirement is going to be how do you process information, large copious amounts of data at the edge. Mm-hmm. And that's where machine learning comes in. Um, the second sort of shift or of late that's happened or change is is the way, you know, one, clearly the, the Moore's Law classic, you know, processing capability. We've got more powerful processors that are able to process information in uh, faster. I remember in 2003, 4, 5, when we were doing some rudimentary sort of AI projects, it would take us literally a day to come back to, si- to run our models. I mean, even though some wow. models today do take a, a long amount of time, uh, but these are really simple models. And it took us almost a day to come back to find that our models had failed. So we had to retweak our models and then run them again for a day, uh-huh. day and a half. So that is a very laborious process. Uh, but with processors getting far more powerful today, um, it's made a big difference in terms of our speed of sort of uh, processing data. Uh, and then sort of within the processor world, the application of GPU uh, type of uh, uh, processors to the, uh, the, uh, the challenge of uh, processing large amounts of data has also helped us quite a bit. Right. And that's sort of the transition from, um, you know, as, as GPUs were historically used for gaming systems, you know, somewhere along the line, someone decided to use them for large data constructs. And that had, again, I think that was one of the seminal moments where right. we have now have the ability to sort of process information much quicker and faster. Um, and um, so you, you have that. And then I think one thing that excites me immensely is the democratization of tool sets and toolkits. I mean, for example, um, and, you know, you know, Microsoft Azure ML um, Studio. I mean, just a very simple democratization on how developers can come in, look at that environment, 
work with what would historically have been very complex undertakings. Because when we were working early on in 2001, 2002, 2003, we didn't have sophisticated tool sets and toolkits that made all of the the, um, the underlying handling of data, orchestration of data, uh, running analytics on data. It, it was something we had to sort of write up from scratch, um, right. you know, in some language. Um, and now you've got these amazing studios um, and, you know, I've leveraged a whole bunch of them in these env- environments or what we call sandbox environments that lets us as developers really play with this technology. And Microsoft Azure ML's studio is one of those really amazing uh, systems that really simplifies that. So the democratization of those tool sets and toolkits, again, is something that's driving um, the, um, the adoption or this, this convergence. And then yeah. last but not least, sort of... Uh, the, the need to process, I mentioned this, the, as machines get smarter, the need to process information at the edge is is really important. And so that also, um, so you've got these four or five sort of underpinnings or sort of these underlying sort of um, um, sort of new changes. They're all coming together at the same time. And that's why adoption, utilization, consumption of this broad field called AI has become simpler. And that's why it's uh, it's becoming more prevalent. Right. And with it become becoming simpler and having those those tools at, at your disposal to now start, you know, doing things quicker than in a day. You can actually run tests, I'm sure, in minutes or hours um, for big data sets. What is the, I know there's a lot of back and forth on the concern over the pace uh-huh. of um, AI moving forward. There's a school of thought that AI could be very dangerous. There needs to be regulation. There needs to be rules around you know, privacy, how we use it, how we use data, how we use AI. Um, And then more of that scientific, like, we're just moving faster because we're getting those tools. And the the more, the further along we get with it, the better it's going to get and it's going to improve society. Where do you kind of sit on between those sides of, you know, this could be really dangerous and detrimental to our society to this could really bolster yes. our society. So, so Penny, this is one of the probably the most difficult questions you've asked <laughs> me. And the reason for that is that if I answer this, I've enshrined my thinking and you know how these things change and shift. Right. Um, but I, what you're sort of describing is a classic sort of Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg sort of head to head on mm-hmm. this particular issue. Um, you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily, and this is not a cop out, so I'm not necessarily uh, in one way or the other sit in either of those camps. But if you were to ask me which side I'd lean more towards, it would probably be on the Elon Musk side. Um, and that's m- less so driven by the technology, but sort of more so driven by human psychology. Right. <laughs> that, w- you know, we often take really powerful technologies and apply them for sometimes insidious purposes. And we've done that across our history, right? So so I think AI will be applied for insidious things, and we're seeing that today in terms of how AI is being leveraged to establish, you know, surveillance-based societies, and and what that means to privacy, and 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 I think we we've got to take those things very very seriously because those will deconstruct the way we uh, we think our societies are to operate, and and they'll happen very subtly. It's almost sort of the the frog in boiling water kind of thing, right? right? So. The, the, that sort of freedom uh, that we sort of take for granted can really erode very slowly and quickly and out of sight and out of mind again. So there, there will be no discussion. There will be no debating. Uh, it will happen very quietly and, and often behind the scenes. And right. before you know it, what we take, take for granted is something that we don't have. And we won't even realize when that happens. So I'm, so I'm a little bit of a 
pessimist in terms of how we will eventually, there's, there's a huge amount of optimism that goes with what AI can bring in terms of um, societal improvement and, um, and sort of helping humanity on a whole bunch of different areas, especially healthcare, for example. Um, but it, its application for certain uh, other purposes um, are, are a little disappointing and a little, uh, um, you know, uh, scary yeah, at times. So I would sort of fall on uh, air more on the side of Elon Musk uh, than Mark Zuckerberg, um, but we'll we'll let time sort of flesh that out. Right. I I was listening to a couple of Elon Musk interviews in prep for this interview, and I I have to say, like, he would get to a point in an interview where I was like, <laughs> I got to turn everything off. Like, <laughs> at one point, he was saying that eventually we'll be able to take all of the data that w- that I've created about myself and transfer it to another being or body should this one go away and i was like right. i i gotta i actually think that's when i started to hear the clinking of yeah. the, the whiskey so so <laughs> that's yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so that's the neuromorphic computing and and um yeah so that's that's quite interesting and again in terms of the arc of um ai as a study or as a field uh, its evolution what has really surprised me is, is when whenever we sort of thought about ai and its evolution Neuromorphic computing was something that was sort of the, you know, the, the end, one of these sort of the, the far reaches or the far rungs of uh, where this field's going to go. And, and, um, and we had sort of you know, adv- advanced language translations or two-way translators and, and sort of more advanced um, chatbots or surgical robots were sort of, again, further downstream, but more within hand. And then, you know, uh, the folks uh, at... Um, uh, with you know, Elon's company came out with a neuromorphic uh, um, computing where they built a robot that enables them to sort of uh, establish um, uh, synaptic access to, um, um, you know, or sort of access to synapse, uh, synapses within within the brain uh, where they can, you know, sort of, um, um, and have sort of provided some level of um, information to us in terms of what those can mean in terms of controlling computers right. and things of that sort. So neuromorphic computing was something at the far rungs or the far edges of the evolution of this field, but it's it's there. And and you know, and so there, what I'm often sort of ex- interested about is what is the R&D that's going on right now somewhere that we don't even know of. Right. That's what and, I always think and, of. And and what is going to come out of uh, out of out of those efforts and something we're just not even aware of. Um, that's kind of exciting but kind of scary as well. Um, and so um, yeah, so again, ba- back to the question lean more towards the Elon Musk side. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of positive that can come out of this, but I'm sure we'll apply this, as humans always do, to certain uh, insidious uh, purposes, and and that's not going to be good for us. Yeah, we just can't help ourselves sometimes. (laughs) Side human psychology piece. Um, You had mentioned, uh, you know, Microsoft and their their Azure um, product that's really helping, you know, in the field and those um, those toolkits and tool sets. What are um, what's the outlook? What's going on? Um, who are the major players in AI today? We you said you know there's R and D probably going on behind the scenes with I'm right. sure many of the players out there. Yeah. Um, but what are you sort of seeing stand out amongst um, the big guys? Um, so you know when I look at sort of from an AI sort of vendor partner landscape. You know, I try and break that down into sort of multiple layers. Then, who are the guys who are or gals who are strong in sort of uh, uh, the the hardware layer? Um, you know, they're building really great uh, um, you know, silicon infrastructure for us to sort of be able to process. And I think that's where. And, and you know, I usually give a talk. I always say, you know, I wish I could come up with a different cast of characters. So it seems seems to always be the same cast of characters. <laughs> so whether it's is Intel or Nvidia or or uh, Micron. 
know, they're they're sort of helping build out sort of that core infrastructure uh, upon which um, everything rides. And so those um, are still sort of the primary players yeah. within the space. Um, and then you have um, from a um, sort of from an, a software infrastructure perspective, you know, you've got, again, those, like I mentioned, like you've got the uh, Azure ML folks at Microsoft, uh, you've got Google with their TensorFlow uh, sandbox environments. Um, so you've got, you know, those companies again, um, and IBM and others that, that are sort of your classic uh, companies that give us the ability to, um, um, you know, deliver around the software layer. And then you've got a whole broad set of ecosystems that's somewhat diverse uh, with respect to the tool sets and toolkits. Um, and, and so that also sort of helps within, uh, within this process. And then you've got the large data companies. And then the question is, where will AI innovation come from? Um, and that's where companies like Google again and Facebook and Apple and others that have access to large data sets. So, you know, whether it's Apple through its iPhones and other sort of systems, and whether it's Netflix in terms of behavioral metrics around mm-hmm. um, entertainment consumption, whether it's Facebook with all of that data set that it has through its applications uh, or any other company that has access to these large data sets, they generally have that opportunity to build really sophisticated uh, underpinnings uh, around machine learning and around AI. So it's it's having that opportunity, it's having the software tool sets and tool sets uh, and toolkits and it's the infrastructure that helps ride all of this stuff. So you've got, you know, different sort of leading players in these different sort of rungs uh, within the overall ecosystem. Mm. So that that kind of talks about the the big the big picture of AI, the the Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musks. But what about, you know, if we were to bring, take it down just a step and what um, AI and those applications, um, how can, how are businesses starting to kind of apply that for, you know, ROI as part of how they do business? Because um, I think that's probably more of the relatable yeah, thing. Yeah. We talk about machines and, you know, robots building. I think there's a YouTube video out there of a robot like that can do drywall. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, my God, the construction industry is going to fall. You know, that's all of that sky is right, falling sort right. of things. But it there there's true application for it in everyday business. So I, I think, um, so that example that you gave with the drywall, um, I wouldn't be quick to sort of dismiss the potential disruption that is right around the corner with respect to the workforce. Okay. And, and I think there are lots of interesting studies, whether it's from Brookings Institution or from uh, uh, McKinsey and co, um, that speak to how AI-specific automation is going to be super disruptive to our societies in the next 15 to 20 years. And there, there's a broad spectrum of numbers that they give. Uh, I, th- I think at, at a basic level, I may be wrong on these numbers, but I think the global workforce is around um, 2.1, 2.2 billion folks that are generally employed globally. Um, you know, at the conservative level, we're looking at a 300 million job disruption in the next 15 to 20 years. Yeah. Wow. And it can be as high as 800 million. Uh, and, and so there's social scientists and, and AI practitioners in general have a view that we're looking at disruptions at the level that we had in the industrial revolution period uh, with the Luddites. And, and if you can imagine sort of the textile industry being yeah. automated and, yeah. and what that um, uh, you know, that had a significant impact with well, the farming industry being automated. And at one point, I think within the U.S., almost 90% of our population was in some way, shape, or form um, associated with the agricultural industry. 
Uh, well, today it's about two percent or less right. than two percent. And and so yes, we've we've sort of transitioned over a period of time, and we had we put in certain mass programs like primary education was not something that we had um, prior to the agricultural shift, and we had to bring in primary education to give our workforce the skill sets to be able to transition. Right. And that period of transition was much longer, and so the societal impact though significant, we we had significant challenges um, in sort of the farming uh, automation and then the industrial revolution period. Um, but we had a long period of time to sort of adjust ourselves and our society and how we trained our workforce to make them capable of, um, uh, of delivering around new, new sort of types of services. That might be different this time around. Because it's moving way faster. The pace of change yeah. is much faster. Yeah. Uh, the need to transition the workforce. So, so, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm going into the weeds on this, but mm-hmm. I think it's a really important topic, uh, which is, you know, you've got low-skilled jobs, you've got what we call mid-skilled jobs, and you've got highly-skilled jobs. Let's say if we look at the workforce and we divide those into those three categories. So the low-skilled jobs, though easy to automate, don't necessarily have a financial upside for businesses to automate. So you can always find low-cost uh, workforce and just right. use them yep. and leverage them for that. And they usually provide services uh, that the mid-skilled uh, folks are leveraging or utilizing. So whether it's food services and or other areas, it's the mid-skilled folks who are sort of consuming those low-skilled services. The low, sk- the mid-skilled jobs are the what require some basic level of training uh, and are repeatable in some cases. Those are the jobs that are most likely to be automated out. So whether it's, um, you know, a lot of information processing, so whether it's paralegal work, whether it's uh, customer service, uh, whether in transportation, it's actually even transportation driving. Um, those are the ones that are likely to be um, disrupted. Now, the challenge for us as, as uh, uh, social scientists would be, how do we get our society to be prepared for those changes? And by the way, the, the, the period of change will be compressed. It's not going to be over 100 years. It's going to be within 15, 20 years. And so usually you either move that workforce to a low-skill job or you move that workforce to a high-skill job. High skills, in this case, are going to be very difficult to sort of train someone who's in a mid-skill. These skills are very sophisticated and very difficult to sort of get folks um, to make that transition. And then the other challenge is, because as you're sort of attenuating the mid-skill jobs and they are sort of the the consumers or lower-skill services, the likelihood is your low-skill jobs are not going to grow either. So you're going to have essentially a workforce for good, you know, and that's maybe one or two generations of folks who are going to have a very hard time transitioning into one bucket or the other. So that disruption is what I think a lot of social scientists talk about is going to be something that a lot of Western uh, democracies are going to have to contend with. And now Brookings has come with uh, a proposition that that's going to impact how we govern. So we we take for granted that we've got these, um, you know, democratized societies with civil liberties and we take it for granted, but there's no guarantee that that's, that's going to continue or be around as these societies go through these convulsions. And so that's something that really concerns me in terms of AI and its impact on society. But that's a completely different topic. No, it's super interesting because I, I, as the everyday person that's out there, that I think the perception is, and that just mine, that's the beauty of a podcast, it can be completely our opinion, our perception, um, is that it's the low skill being replaced. Right. It's the, you know, the cashier with the self-checkouts. It's 
you know, the the brick and mortar stores because I now use Amazon to do everything. And so I, I think we as a as a body of people think, oh, we don't need any more cashiers. We don't right. need any more restaurant workers. You know, that I'm fine ordering at Chili's at my table and paying for it and not dealing with a human. Um, but we don't think about that that mid level, which is where the majority of us actually sit Absolutely. every single day. Absolutely. So what's your you know hypothesis of how we are going to tackle that as a society with that large group of people now that have to go one way or the other. Now, the optimistic view is that that AI or sort of this transition in general will create a whole bunch of new jobs. And that's where a lot of that workforce will sit. But there's some early indication that and data showing this, that there is a, a decoupling of job creation and automation that has begun to happen. And sort of started happening in the 2000s. So if you go back all the way to 1940s, you, you'll often see sort of a parallel sort of growth of uh, productivity enhancement with employment enhancement. Mm-hmm. And that productivity enhancement usually came from automation. So there was, there was a corollary, or you can make a correlation that as you were automating and improving your productivity, um, you were essentially creating other jobs. And you basically had the ability to sort of uh, enable folks to transition into those jobs. Somewhere around 2000, that decoupling happened, where those two lines of growth stopped happening, where productivity enhancement continued to happen through automation, um, but jobs weren't being created. And again, so that's another thing that is different than what was in the past. Right. So I, I don't have an answer for this. I mean, I know it's a question. I, I wish I could tell you yeah, there's going to be a whole bunch of new jobs that will get created. I don't have an answer. And and I think the reality is I, I, my gut sense is telling me and my sense is telling me that there's going to be a, a significant amount of, of disruption um, and, and how we contend with it, what we do, um, you know, whether we've got to sort of come up with, again, a, a mass project like the primary education project. Right, so how we educated ourselves, but that primary education construct that we're still consuming, or our kids are consuming today, which are the three R's, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic. Mm-hmm. Those are the three sort of fundamental underpinnings of primary education. Uh, that needs to be changed. Right. And and what would that program be? So someone with far greater imagination than myself within <laughs> these fields as social scientists have to think about these problems or challenges. And, and figure out what would that, that process be that enables our, our populations and our workforce to make a smoother transition. But there should be no illusion that this is going to be significantly disruptive. Right. And I, I think, I mean, we've seen in, in education, and I um, have a little bit of a background um, in K-12 through education, and we saw the rise up of the STEM science um, technology, engineering, right. and math, and now it's arts and, you know, add, it, add another it's, it's add another level, <laughs> stream, steam, STEM. Um, but I think that that was kind of the, maybe the introduction Perhaps, of trying right. to prepare right. um, and get, you know, kids thinking less about, you know, going for maybe a general studies or, you know, some sort of degree that doesn't have a high level of, of technical skill to it um, and trying to get kids to go that direction in preparation for what might be coming down the line in 15 or or 20 years. But agree, people much um, more imaginative than us working um, with uh, that education system uh, to try to 
you right. know, stave off some of uh, yep. the damaging effects of what might come to the workforce yep. in the next couple of decades. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, for, you know, for some of us who are thinking in terms of how to make our societies more competitive, I, I think there is a legitimate case to be made that we're going to be in a state or stage, and perhaps we already are, where your national power is directly related to your ability to build these systems. And and I think a lot of folks sometimes even sort of talk to these as sort of the, the war of the algorithms, right? So how nation states are building more sophisticated algorithms that, that bring in productivity into their organi- into their sort of uh, um, economies. And so it's almost like whether it's China or Japan or, or, or India or other sort of large or Germany or other large sort of countries that have sophisticated sort of tech base, uh, they're all striving to build more sophisticated AI engines to sort of help them solve and optimize how they operate. And so it's almost like this is a war of, um, um, you know, war of the algorithms and, and where the U.S. sort of eventually falls on this. I mean, I think we're in a good position to start off with, but we shouldn't, again, take that for granted. Right. There's a lot of interesting work that's coming out of other geographies. And, and sometimes we're so geographically isolated that we, we sort of think that the world begins and ends here. It does not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've traveled the world. I, I've seen places. And, and I think in some ways that may be part of our curriculum, that, that STEM curriculum downstream is like people need to travel to know, and, and see know what's going on, what's going on <laughs> around the world. So that does not make us complacent. Right. Uh, and I think that's one thing that's a challenge and, and people need to sort of really think that through. Yeah, yeah it, it definitely, I think that sort of belief that it starts and ends here can sometimes be what blindsides right, us right. when things come out of nowhere. Um, so I, I, like we've said, this is a hugely or a huge and broad topic. Um, what I would love to do is have you back um, to kind of expand on more topics around artificial intelligence, specifically how um, how businesses are using it. Because I think that that is really um, interesting when we go back to sort of that uh, introduction of the web and those banner ads and now the data that's being collected to um, kind of hit consumers and market brands and have companies use data that they're collecting on a daily basis to actually increase their ROI um, uh-huh. across the board. Give us a little bit of a preview of sort of that topic and how um, companies are starting to use AI to produce some ROI. Sure, absolutely. And um, so, you know, whether it's telco leveraging um AI in, in their service operations, whether it is, um, you know, automotive sort of uh, leveraging um, sort of AI or robotics or automation in manufacturing, whether it's financial industry looking at AI for risk modeling and or retail for behavioral uh, metrics or analytics or predictive or prescriptive analytics. So there's the application is really broad. And, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I, I cannot Im- remember the number of times I would speak to Tim, my boss, and and he would always say like, Jamal, what are we doing on 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 AI? And so <laughs> I can almost imagine there are a whole bunch of CEOs out there who are sort of going after their sort of whether it's their CIOs or their key sort of innovation uh, officers within their companies and saying, what are you doing around AI? Because there is that hype, right. and it's 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 almost like um, you know everyone's trying to figure out and and yes. From an enterprise perspective, what they have is their data. And, and I think uh, there, there is sort of a cliche um, that, um, or sort of, uh, you know, 
proverbial sense or, or expression, which is, you know, data is, is the new currency. And I, I, we really believe that. I, I think we also believe that here at Connection, that data is our currency. Um, so how you can get your hands around that data and use that to uh, inform you, to use that to provide you insights, to improve your productivity, um, and perhaps look at opportunities you haven't even considered. So I would love to come back, talk to you in terms of uh, that particular space. Um, and then there are areas that we haven't touched, which are sort of the core underpinnings of AI technology. And what is it? You know, what is machine learning? And how, what's the evolution within machine learning? What are the different neural networks? What, how do particular neural networks work for particular tasks? Uh, and then just one area that I find incredibly compelling, and it's sort of, it's the surreal stuff in AI, which is you know generative adversarial networks. How you can build two networks that go against each other and sort of build images and things of that sort. And, and what's coming out of those systems is just mind boggling. Again, Connections Jamal Khan with his first of what we expect to be many conversations about advancements in artificial intelligence. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to the Tech Experience Podcast from Connection. Welcome to another episode of Connections Tech Experience. Today, we are continuing the conversation around artificial intelligence with president of GlobalServe, Jamal Khan. Jamal is also responsible for our marketing, e-commerce, and data here at Connection. You may remember from our last episode, we tackled all things artificial intelligence, from it being a scientific study to how it is affecting the private and public sector. Today, we are going to specifically tackle cybersecurity and how it relates to artificial intelligence. Jamal, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Benny. Good to be back. We're so happy to have you. I was just commenting before we started that there is about 30 episodes between our first conversation. Hopefully, hopefully you guys have retained the quality, given we the have. frequency. You know what? You might have actually kicked off the elevation of quality <laughs> with artificial intelligence. Um, but so happy to have you back here. And we talked a little bit about your background in the first episode. Um, but for those that are new listeners or tuning in for the first time, give a little bit of a background around how you have worked with AI, why you're a subject matter expert, um, and what brings you to the podcast today. Yeah, so, you know, just the involvement in AI, as I expressed in the last session that we had, was around building uh, NLP-based systems around what we called human contextual data and its application in the cybersecurity space. And that had more to do with how you extract certain keywords in, in certain chat rooms and other things that are more cybersecurity related. And from that, you can perhaps get an early insight into potential downstream attack vectors. So that's how I got involved in sort of this core area around AI. But I think from a cybersecurity perspective, it's something that you know, I've been working on and with as you know, with my Commodore 64, mm -hmm. you know, in the 80s onwards. And then, you know, when we had a more connected network you had sort of uh, applications like Archie, Gopher, uh, IRCs, which were the internet relay chat. So there was a, and there was a whole broad spectrum of, you know, hacking, basic hacking mm -hmm. that was done in those days. And then downstream, as I explained last time around, it was around building security and trust models around internet-based applications. And that's when I got involved with a company uh, called VeriSign, mm -hmm. which had embedded their root CA 
certificates in browsers that we could leverage to establish bi-directional authentication and, and SSL uh, transactions around. In those days, uh, the equity applications that we were building, equity trading applications that we were building for the internet. So that's sort of the core focus around cybersecurity. And then I just, just stayed involved in this space and have been uh, involved in some way, shape, or capacity uh, ever since. And that's where that SISEC background comes from. Excellent. So we, uh, you know, throughout the historical episodes, we've done the industry of technology and really any industry. Security seems right now to be the the hot button. It's what a lot of people are leading with. It's what they're talking about, especially with this unknown space of the internet and artificial intelligence, machine learning. So one thing that I always wonder is this landscape is constantly changing and it feels like we can never really you know, we're sort of chasing our tail around cybersecurity and we don't really know every time. Well, it's like a game of whack-a-mole, right, you know, the right. arcade game. You hit one, another one pops up. What do you think is sort of the the main reason we can't really seem to get the cybersecurity thing aligned and get ahead of it? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And I think a question a lot of cybersecurity practitioners probably do ponder over or should ask. And, and in a lot of ways, yes, it seems overtly when you look at it optically that things are always shifting and changing. But fundamentally, there's certain foundational elements within what we consider to be the cybersecurity ecosystem that haven't changed much. And, and those are the underpinnings around which we have some of these challenges that we talk about. One fundamentally is the core protocol, uh, your internet protocol, TCP IP. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's a protocol that was developed primarily for resi resiliency and, and connectivity. And if those of you who know the history of the internet, it began as ARPANET, right? It was, it was a DOD DARPA uh, project primarily designed around how to enable connectivity between multiple sites so communications could be maintained in the case of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. If you had sequential communications networks, if you just cut one of those, you would basically bring the network down by having a TCP IP based network, which was more of sort of a mesh based network. Even if you brought one core site down, you could sort of bypass that site and be able to reach your endpoint. So it was fundamentally driven around resiliency. Security was never gotcha. a core function of the protocol. Uh, so that was such a foundational element that when the protocol that runs the internet was designed, it was not designed with security in mind. Now, subsequent to that, there have been certain other standards that have come in, like IPsec and other standards. And then on the application layer, you know, you now have other sort of uh, TLS and SSL and other sort of application layer security protocols that have been established that do provide some level of security. But fundamentally, the IP protocol itself is insecure. The second thing that that never changes and will never change is human behavioral psychology. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a, a core element in, in cybersecurity that is leveraged by either sides, right? Primarily by black hats. These are the folks who are trying to penetrate networks, which is how can I work the human psychology? This could be something as basic as social engineering, yeah. which is how do I, you know, spare fish or fish an individual and work on their underlying psychological functions to be able to penetrate certain environments. And it could be something more basic, uh, which or more fundamental, which is how developers code, how they write the core applications. So there's that basic human psychology that is at play, that is an ever enduring challenge that will never go away. Right. Uh, and, and you know, there's that old adage in cybersecurity that you're only as strong as your weakest link. If you've got a very strong security infrastructure, but you've got one fundamental weakness, and that's human beings. And if you can attack those, 
you can essentially bypass the, sec- the strongest security systems that you have. So that that's a challenge that's ever enduring. So that's why we have this whack-a-mole. It never goes away. Um, and then when we're building commercial applications or applications in general, um, security again is, is an afterthought. Uh, it's usually time to market, speed to market, functionality features. And then comes in the, the mindset around how do we secure those applications. Right. And so if you're not fundamentally looking at application development from the perspective that I've got to secure this from the onset, then it becomes very difficult to bolt it on. And so hence these you know, three or four fundamental challenges have never gone away and will never go away. And we'll always have that uh, challenge. So do you see, you know, sort of the role of, of I, I don't want to refer to everything as AI, it's more of a machine learning capability. When, when people are developing new software, new systems, are they using machine learning in kind of predicting that human behavior, that unknown, or what other roles is, is AI or machine learning taking place in that um, cybersecurity landscape? Right. So it's, it's a little bit at this point, I, you know, I've, I've done some sort of research in this space. um, And, you know, I haven't really nailed down really compelling AI implementation, at least in the private sector around cybersecurity. But I am you know, we can see there there are certain AI elements that are being brought in, certainly around, you know, network flow, um, and then being able to sort of analyze large amounts of information and through machine learning have already established certain signatures uh, that you can then look at within a normal flow of network traffic and identify anomalies perhaps a little bit earlier. There are certainly AI engines that are coming in a very basic level, which is, um, you know, chatbots that enable security practitioners to access information at at a much faster cadence uh, and then be able to react to particular events. So, you know, you, you do hear sort of the, the classic marketing spiel that, oh, we, we're an AI-based cybersecurity, mm-hmm. but I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I, I, I think I'll let this flesh out a little bit more. Theoretically, when you talk to sort of you know, national cybersecurity professionals who are looking at from a national challenge perspective, there's certainly a lot of work being done in this space about looking at sort of national network flows and then being able to identify certain anomalies that might be precursors to much more sophisticated national uh, attacks on infrastructure. Uh, so I think it, it's still early on, but it's 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 certainly going to be a, a compelling space that we should look at in terms of how AI straddles into uh, the cybersecurity space in the course of the next you know three to five years. Yeah, and we that was one thing we had talked about on the last episode is sometimes um, looking at uh, just where we live and thinking that this is the end all be all here in America, but you know other nations are dealing with building strategies around this, around cybersecurity, uh, implementing AI. Um, where do you, you know, in your experience and looking across globally, where and how are you seeing different nations building up capabilities around cybersecurity um, in regards to AI? So I will avoid sort of naming the nations. Just, <laughs> Don't name the nations, but, just but the what, trends. <laughs> right. But what I think you clearly see is that there are certain national uh, entities that have, you know, pretty sophisticated programs now that they've developed. And, and you know, I always, when I think about it and I have these conversations with other cybersecurity professionals, um, you know, given that within the U.S. we have a very sophisticated economy with lots of job opportunities. I mean, we're right now in, at, at that stage in our economy where, you know, unemployment is very low. 
so usually what ends up happening is some of the smartest minds are actually working for the private sector because mm-hmm. usually ends up being more. And in terms of national defense from a U.S. cyber command perspective, it's generally a, a government-run function. And I'm not going to say that they don't have really smart people. They have really super bright folks. But there's there are a limited set of resources, and there's always a struggle right to get those folks, folks working in that particular uh, segment because the private sector is always grabbing some of the smarter minds, which is why within the U.S. we have a much stronger public-private sector relationship uh, yeah. where national cybersecurity is a joint uh, effort and should be, rightfully so. But conversely, in other countries where you don't have this challenge, where there's a natural pull from the private sector, mm-hmm. you have some of the smartest minds and individuals right. sitting in, in those functions. Um, so from a human resource perspective, I think there's significant parity in terms of skill set that's available available in some of those other geographies. Uh, but conversely, um, they, are, they in themselves have inherent weaknesses. But then sort of the yang to the ying is that some of those societies are not necessarily that digitized as we are. And we leverage on a far greater scale on a digitized infrastructure, whether it's a national infrastructure or a private sector infrastructure. So you you always have these pulls and and pushes within this space. And I always think about cybersecurity capability as almost the final equalizer in a lot of ways. Mm. So you can be a much smaller player and carry a really heavy punch if you have certain capabilities and you build those. And so, uh, again, I I think that's where the dynamic is. There's certain, obviously, other geographies that have a far more sophisticated, comprehensive uh, means of collection. There are other uh, geographies and or us that have a far more sophisticated way of ana- analyzing that data set. And then again, I think the, the, the best approach to building out a comprehensive national cybersecurity infrastructure is when you have public-private sector relationships. And, and so as you're building out the core applications, as you're laying down that private uh, infrastructure, you're sort of working in tandem the uh, the government agencies to establish a more secure infrastructure. Yeah, I've always been, I'm as everything evolves, I... I'm increasingly curious about, you know, how you sort of straddle that line of public and private sector and really how you don't lose control of what data is being shared or what work is being done um, because there's not the same rules between private and public sector. So what are some of the inherent challenges, you know, from a privacy you know, even security, looking at security, privacy is a huge issue. If you've got private corporations that are collecting data, sharing data with public sector, I'm going to get all my privates and publics <laughs> confused. But how do we straddle that line without really losing some of the inherent privacy or security across public and private sectors? I, I, I think that's a very, very important point. And it speaks to how we want to develop ourselves as a society downstream. These are implications for us as an overall society. And so I think you don't straddle that line. It's, it's, you've got to be super cautious. So there is no straddling and there are no sort of gray lines. There have to be very significant, well-defined rules of engagement. And that is if we as a society want to continue down the path of being a pluralistic, civil liberties-based society, then you've got to really define those lines. And conversely, both counterparties, whether it's the public sector or the private sector, need to be comfortable with that because I think there's a common purpose. Uh, but there is no sort of you know, guessing this process. There, there, there needs to be a really well thought out, well defined. And I think some companies are far more mature in their approach to this. Now that does lead to some consternation within sort of this counterparty mm-hmm. um, arrangement. But I think over the long run, that is the right approach if, if we are to sustain the, the, the form of uh, society that we live in. But I, I think it's always a slippery slope. 
you've got to be super, super cautious. And, and I think on both ends, because that serves the common purpose of uh, us having a society that is a pluralistic, open society um, where individual rights are, are uh, held um, strong. So uh, again, I, I don't think there is any gray lines. There have to be really well-defined rules of engagement. Yeah, because I always, you you see um, lots of companies and lots of solutions and lots of, you know, development going on. And I, you know, I think of it from a, a, a private company point of view, you, you see it a lot, you see adoption of a technology or a solution, and it might not be the right thing. So it's either not used or something goes awry. That's okay, not okay, but not as sensitive in a private organization as it is, you know, in a nation state. Right. You can't say, oh, I chose the wrong vendor and now my entire nation is under scrutiny, scrutiny, scrutiny. Right. <laughs> There's a blooper for you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's, you don't kind of have the same leeway to make small mistakes yeah. when you're dealing with a na- national, national security. Entity. Right, so yeah, national, national entity, entity is a sovereign. And right. a sovereign has far more um, you know, compelling control over a society. So you've got to be super careful. I right. agree, absolutely. And it, so you, you mentioned sort of we're not, you know, why we're chasing our tails is really we don't have the, the infrastructure hasn't been designed to wrap around cybersecurity. So when we look at all of the different nations, and like you said, they're, you know, building at a different pace, have different resources. You know, if the core infrastructure is weak of a nation, how does a, a government and the agencies that it works with build a security proposition around that. Right. I mean, so that's sort of the, the, the 20,000, whatever the proverbial number <laughs> dollar sort of question. And it is a struggle. It is a, and it's a, it's, it's a constant chasing your tail sort of a struggle. You know, there's a lot of good work being done uh, here in the U.S. around building out sort of core capabilities. And again, the public-private sector sort of relationships. And to be honest with you, if just going back 15, 20 years ago, if somebody asked me this question, as, as I was involved in building some of that you know, core infrastructure, especially in the what we consider the public uh, areas, such as utilities and power uh, and things of that sort. Well, I, I did imagine, but I, I didn't think it would happen so quick in terms of the, the changing dynamics and shifts around technology adoption in what we call industrials. And, and so as industrials themselves are becoming more automated and bringing in technology at, at the core level, the threat itself increases. And as you sort of now straddle into the IoT space where, you know, we're establishing sensors, and that's again coming from the need to right. automate the industrials um, so you can understand, you know, what, what systems are working, what systems are not working, what's the downtime, and then again, bringing AI to provide some level of predictive analytics into how those industrials operate. Um, that in itself opens up a huge attack surface for potential ingress. And, and so, you know, again, I, I don't think there's, there's an avoidance. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not if, but when mm-hmm. uh, that attack is likely to happen. The one sort of saving grace in cybersecurity is if you use it, you lose it. And so from a national attack perspective, there's always this sense that as you're building out your, your what we cons, you know, consider to be your cyber munitions, you tend to sort of keep it in store. 
Mm. You, you just don't preemptively use it nil, willy nilly. Right. Uh, the, the the threat to that infrastructure on a on a day in day out basis would potentially come from from sort of uh, non state actors most most likely in the short run. When you're looking at cyber warfare, is generally going to come from state actors, and but that's usually going to happen when when uh, and it, a very significant event happens because there's that that underlying belief that if you use it, you lose it because you use it once. The, the other party actually then understands how to mitigate those risks. Right. But I think it's, a, it's an established fact that no system is secure fully. It'll never, ever be fully secured. And it should also be considered an established fact that systems are going to get penetrated. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I always thought of myself as a you know, somewhat savvy practitioner within this space till the day I got some of my systems and infrastructure penetrated. Uh, and the sense of helplessness, it almost took us three or four days to sort of get that infrastructure back wow. up and running, you know, and, and, and sort of understanding how weak we were in certain controls that we never tested or checked. I think till you truly get penetrated, you really don't know whether <laughs> it's the it's the old saying, you don't know what you don't know, you, what you, you don't, don't know. know where you're weak and, and until you someone attacks it. Simple <laughs> things spot. like and it's the simple things that you never focus on, which which one should if the processes are well defined, uh, which is, you know, will your backups ever be able to bring it back up? Right. Uh, and how fast can you recover from a backup? Now you're taking backups of certain core systems, but if you're not on an ongoing basis testing whether you can leverage those backups to bring up your infrastructure, that's a very basic thing right. that you should do. But a lot of people don't. They think, oh, we're just taking backups when things go south. Yep. Well, we've got our backups. Well, you go to those backups and you suddenly realize as you're trying to recreate from those backups, it takes a hell long, longer than you thought it would. Right. And so those are the small elements uh, that you only realize when your systems actually do get penetrated. But so I think to the question of national infrastructure, you know, there is the public-private sector relationship. Uh, I think as any good security practitioner would tell you, uh, they're concentric circles of security that one has to uh, consistently build. You should expect those circles to get penetrated and you should have a very strong remediation, you know, sort of process in play and mechanism to how to get yourself out of those, uh, those challenges. So as we get more advanced, and we always talk about the pace of technology is moving faster than it ever has before. And you mentioned IoT. We know 5G is near here on the horizon in terms of mass consumption. With that pace, do you have any sort of concern about, you know, we have, you can have an attack. It's like you said, it's bound to happen. But the pace that technology is moving and the pace that, you know, national governments are able to build up security. Do you have any sort of concern around when those two maybe come together where we've moved too fast and we don't really have the security plays in yeah, place? Yeah, I, I think we're well beyond that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we're, we're in a stage where technology, and have been for a while, and I think it's been sort of a struggle from, from day one, where technology innovation far outstrips any means of securing that environment, which is why, personally, as a security practitioner, I'm always of the view that, yes, you should take all those lessons that we've learned as, as good security practitioners in terms of building out your security infrastructure, which is process controls, infrastructure, people, uh, training, you know, all of those elements. But you should take for granted that you are going to get penetrated. And then the question becomes, as that attack vector happens, how do you identify it fast enough? And how do you remediate and get yourself out of that hole fast enough? Right. That's the, I think that's where a lot of cybersecurity innovation is going to come in the future with, in, in terms of identification and remediation. 
Um, yeah, the skill is coming back from the attack, not preventing. Right. The I, I think preventative. You've you've still got to do the basic yep. because that kind of helps avoid some of the most sort of fundamental attacks. Otherwise, your infrastructure just won't be up because you know you could potentially have a script giddy out there, who's uh, who's penetrating your systems every day and bringing your core infrastructure down. So you've right. got to do the basic stuff. Uh, but any level of sophisticated attack on your environment will eventually be successful. So now the question is, are you, do you have the controls and mechanisms and the processes and the systems to bring yourself? And again, that's where partnerships come in. Partnerships like with Connection, you know, with, with our cybersecurity team and others, where do you have a good mem- team member or set of relationships that you can leverage from uh, a SWAT perspective? You know, you've got an event that's happening. You need really deep skill sets to come in and try and at least help you stop those attacks. So that's a SWAT uh, team or a Tiger team. Right. Where's that relationship? And then post that in in parallel, you're running through you know forensic analysis to identify the core areas of ingress, those attack vectors, so you can start buttoning that down. While in parallel, you're also running a process control, uh, sorry, a, a, an infrastructure reboot, which is how do I build, bring back my system from, uh, from all of my backups. So you've got, when an event happens, you've got three or four core elements running in parallel. Now, either you build that capacity internally, or you actually partner with uh, with organizations that can bring that uh, to your to that effort to that fight. So that's generally how I perceive this. So what that's a that's a good segue. So uh, Connection has a great uh, cybersecurity practice here, and so tell us a little bit more about how that practice. I think you kind of hit a couple of those bullets, but what the team here actually can do for those public and private sector companies that allow them to you know, mitigate the risk that they, they have in front of them. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm a very skeptical cybersecurity consumer. So I, <laughs> I my background, you know, I, I, used, I used to work uh, at VeriSign and, and built a lot of cybersecurity um, elements. And we were sort of the, uh, a vendor for a lot of different companies and, and public private sector. So I always be, believe, especially in the CISEC space, that depth is more important than cross-functional capabilities. Mm. And so within our group, what I can you know, tell our customers and others who are listening that um, you know, there's a core area around assessment that I think our team does a phenomenal job of. And they have a very sort of well-defined process, the SLO process, which is the security landscape optimization process mm-hmm. uh, that they've, you know, they've done a really good job around and have worked for on many years to sort of fine tune that. So if you were to ask me where our core capability lies, it's in providing our customers with a view of their landscape. You know, what is the reality? Where do you sit? And then giving them a guidance in terms of how to sort of uh, bridge the gaps that they have and close those those vulnerabilities that they have. Now, so obviously, finding those, so finding those weaknesses before before they actually become weaknesses. Yeah, and I think the other element that we we certainly bring to bat is that as you're then building out that core infrastructure, you know, Connection has the relationships with those security vendors that we can bring the best of breed uh, of products, uh, whether it's endpoint security, whether it's core security, whether it's cloud security, whether it's analytics or or log analysis, you know, Connection provides that broad spectrum of um, products that we can bring that are partner products and integrate mm-hmm. into those challenges that companies might have. Yeah, and the other the other thing that we I uh, we did a a nice uh, a, a podcast series with the security team, and they talked about how their team to 
your point, you don't, it's, it works until someone hits it and then you lose all sort of, um, you can't use that trick again. Right. Right. You use it, you lose <laughs> you it. You use it, you lose it. But that comes into the whole white hat versus black hat thing. And I know that our team definitely has some capabilities to go in and try to hit those right. weak points and find out where those vulnerabilities are. Um, so how does that sort of the white hat, um, black hat work with our team? Well, I, I think, and this may be a good sort of segue to sort of explain that we will be uh, hopefully, um, and, and you know, Rob uh, probably has a better sense of this, but I think end of Q1, sometime in Q2, we'll, we're probably going to be launching um, a, an exercise that where we will show a set of white hat resources going against a set of black hat resources. Oh, I love and, that. Yeah, it's it's going to be phenomenal. And we've we've designed that and we're basically going after an, uh, an industrial infrastructure. So it's it's how white hats would potentially secure an industrial infrastructure and then how black hats would go after that infrastructure. For complete transparency, I'm wearing the black hat those in, in, in when that exercise happens. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so myself and my my team, uh, we will try and penetrate that environment um, while uh, Steve uh, and others would, would be securing it. It's I, almost I, like a cybersecurity video game. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we kind of know who's going to win that, but uh, <laughs> it's almost a foregone conclusion. Uh, but um, that's you know one of the things that we do quite effectively, which is we're, we're trying to straddle and wear both hats. And I think what I really like about our team is that they bring a diverse skill set. And again, in cybersecurity, you cannot be very myopic. The minute you're myopic, you know, you've lost the plot. Right. So where you may, we may have someone in our team who has, ten, you know, multiple decades of experience in working on, on in the government uh, uh, segment. You have folks who've worked in the private sector and you folks who've straddled both. And, and then you have folks who are working the uh, OSI uh, stack, right? So they're really strong in a layer four or networking layer. And then and there are team members who are very strong in the application layer. In a team, you should always look at that multifunctional, cross-functional right. skill set in cybersecurity. You cannot necessarily have you know a team that's very uniform. You want to have diversity. Right. Right, because then you miss all of those other spots, like Absolutely. not knowing how long it's going to yeah, take because, to bring your backup back. Right, because <laughs> folks who are trying to attack your your system are very resilient. They're extremely creative. Right, and and I think you know I often say cybersecurity in a lot of ways is it's more so art than technology. That comes from the need for someone to be very creative in in order to be able to sort of get into these systems. Yeah, and that's uh, we've heard the term a lot, uh, ethical hacking. I think I said hacking for good once, and I was quickly <laughs> corrected. Um, but that's the whole, you know, the value of the ethical hacking is you have that broad team that knows has that expertise in all different areas, and they're proactively trying to show weakness versus attack you it's at a, that weakness exactly. point. Exactly, it's a proactive yeah. service yeah. that tries to preempt and identify uh, issues. So you sort of wear the black hat for a day or a week or whatever, and, and you try and attack the systems and see if you can get in. And you can do that through two different approaches. So you've got the white box approach and you've got the black box approach. In a white box approach, uh, you work with the folks who have managed the system where they give you an insight into that full environment. So you don't have to do much, what we call fingerprinting analysis. You kind of know what the infrastructure mm -hmm. is. And, and you can do white box ethical hacking in a much shorter period of time, but then you can have a true black box, which is someone coming in with absolutely no visibility on the infrastructure and, and then trying to penetrate the environment. So you can do a combination of those. Awesome. So I look forward to the webinar, the white hat versus black hat webinar. That should be a really cool experience. 
So looking at this more broadly around cybersecurity, what do you really see in the landscape of challenges um, on a consumer level, public sector, private sector level, sort of as a whole? Yeah, so that's a pretty big, broad question. question. So it's, <laughs> I'll probably go on a little bit of a monologue, but you know, from and that's absolutely right. So you can kind of segment the space in in sort of what the individual or consumer world looks like, and what's the public infrastructure challenges, and what are sort of the quasi government and government state challenges uh, out there. So from a consumer perspective, I think it's pretty evident. How do we maintain and manage control over our data? Mm. Uh, our privacy, yeah. our privacy, our data, our information, uh, because uh, as as we ourselves, from a consumer perspective, are becoming more digitized, have access to our online banking applications, and so on and so forth, uh, that in itself becomes a pretty significant challenge. And, and we, we see those threats on an ongoing yeah. basis, whether it's the Equifax yeah. issue or other challenges that have happened. That's a pretty insidious, on a very personal level, impacts all of us. And we get, do, do you feel like we're more People are getting more comfortable just with being so, you know, for lack of a technical term, willy nilly with our own information. No, I, I like think we walk around with our banking information on our phone, with every all of our personal information on our phone, all of our conversations. And we as consumers are more and more comfortable just pushing our data, our, I, our information out there. I think if you look at our gen, my generation, and uh, that's probably the Gen X, Gen Y kind of time frame, uh, you know, we were somewhat skeptical, so we're somewhat cautious. You know, post our generation, I think there came a group that kind of was born in the Instagram worlds mm-hmm. and the Snapchat worlds and things of that sort. They're, they're super comfortable with these platforms and devices. Their whole world operates around those. But I, and I maybe, this is maybe too early to call, but when I look at my kids who are much younger, um, you know, in their teens, mid-teens, and they're a little bit more skeptical. Yeah? They absolutely are. And they are a little bit more cautious. Now, it could be something that, and I know within the school systems, there's a lot of training and education that is now part of the curriculum that talks about cyberbullying and cyber challenges Mm -hmm. and cyber issues. And that made be something that's made them a little bit more skeptical about this technology. So I'm hoping that that helps bring some level of moderation in how they perceive the utility of these tool sets and toolkits and, and this medium in general. Uh, but but that threat with from a private sector or consumer perspective is, you know, access to our data uh, information. And, you know, in some respects that straddles in as we are starting to automate our homes more. You've got those thermostats that are automated. You've got TVs that are smart TVs. You're bringing that attack surface well within the house that did right. not exist. And that's going to increase with IoT sensors and other things as well. So that's, I think that landscape is there to stay. I'm hoping uh, the next generation becomes a little bit more cautious and, and, and self-regulates themselves. Private sector, same challenges we've, been, we've had for the last 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether it's malware, whether it's bringing down your core production environments and that causes impact, financial impact, whether it's uh, a matter of um, uh, gaining access to a private sector company's customer information that has huge impacts on the brand, that has financial uh, impact as well, whether again, it's Target or some of those other larger events that we've we've seen in the last few years. Um, so that that challenge exists. And, and then sort of if you straddle into the quasi public sector world, you're looking at ransomware, you know, whether it's uh, state, local governments, uh, whether it's school districts, 
Uh, you'll be surprised how many target. school yep. districts are getting hit by mm-hmm. ransomware, and it's you know it's a shame. And 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 that that infrastructure, because as schools are getting more digitized, you know, s- uh, again, Wi-Fi networks and and um, smart boards, and right. everyone's got a Chromebook. Um, the attack surface has expanded significantly. And then, last but not least, the 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 public sector, the government sector, I think that is a huge challenge and and something that I'm super nervous about. And again, like as I mentioned earlier on. Uh, 15, 20, 20 years ago, I wasn't as concerned. Mm. And I'm generally a very conservative person. I'm not given to you know one hype or the other. And so 20 years ago, as, as we were building out and digitizing some of the that core uh, national infrastructure, uh, there was a concern and we were building sort of the basic uh, elements of securing that infrastructure. Uh, but the threat landscape was still not as sophisticated. Mm. You know, the democratization of the abilities to um, attack systems is also something that's changed and shifted and it's got base. So I think that challenge is going to be a very significant challenge for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, un- unless there's a fundamental shift in how we right. handle data, how we build our networks, uh, right. and that comes back down to that core protocol. Right. That TCP IP protocol uh, will never change or shift. And so, you know, I know, and I know there are certain other sort of uh, protocols like HIP and others that, that are trying to address some of those core IP challenges. But I think on a national infrastructure level, we, we still need to contend with a pretty significant challenge. The challenge is going to get much worse. And those capabilities, as we talked about, are going to be built. And now you bring in AI that l- brings in some level of automation right. to the attack efforts but conversely, also brings some level of automation to the remediation to the security, efforts. Yeah, right. Efforts, so, yeah. you, so, so again, it's it's a cat and mouse, and it's been forever the cat and mouse you know chase between those two entities. As one party builds stronger tool sets to attack, the other builds stronger tool sets to protect. And I think we're going to be in this struggle for the foreseeable future. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds extremely optimistic. No, <laughs> um, no and I, I think that's a, a great place for us to wrap here. We're going to continue this series with you and, you know, looking at the, we have the foundation of artificial intelligence. We've chatted about um, the cybersecurity risks of just, you know, nations and the private sector as a whole. Um, I'd love to have you come back and we kind of dig into bringing those two things together when we integrate AI into um, our worlds and, you know, machine learning takes over where we have control, where we start to lose control and get some of your thoughts around that topic as well. The the machine is coming. The machine (laughs) is coming. So Jamal, thank you so much for joining me today. Such a pleasure and can't wait to have you back. Thank you, Penny. Thanks. Thanks.